This edition of the Esoteric News Briefs is a bit different. Typically, I summarize news articles from the past month. Tonight, though, I'm joined by Jeremy McGowan, retired U.S. Air Force service member and UFO witness who was interviewed by Lou Elizondo on History Channel's Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation. Welcome to the Esoteric Book Club, Jeremy. It is a fantastic pleasure to be here. Thank you so very much. Thank you for joining me tonight. I also have to give a shout out to Kevin, our mutual friend who introduced the two of us. Absolutely. Shout out to Kevin. Thank you, man. Now, I don't necessarily want to rehash everything that has been said on the History Channel's interview and on other podcasts, so I'll just summarize it real quick. You were on deployment in the desert of Jordan, correct? Yeah, it was uh, 1995 in deep, deep in the Jordanian desert. And it was during this deployment that you were placed in charge of guarding a large wooden crate that you later discovered was most likely a recovered nuclear device. And that's when you had your UFO encounter. It doesn't seem as if you are sure that it was one UFO following a holding pattern or if it was a multiple series of UFOs following the same course. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. I had never even considered the fact that it could have been more than one. Uh, just a, a quick rehash. And like you said, we won't go into the, the minutiae of the details of the sighting, but uh, I was looking through night vision goggles and I saw a, an object uh, traverse the horizon uh, from horizon to horizon with a 90 degree turn right in the middle in under two seconds. And I saw it happen multiple upon multiple times. And until I was actually talking to Lou uh, being interviewed for that episode of the show, I hadn't even really considered that it could have been more than one. And Lou would ask me straight up, he, was, he asked me, do you think it was the same object flying the same flight path over and over again? Or do you think it could have been multiple crafts following the same flight path? And when he said that, it creeped me out because until then I had never even considered that it would possible to be to be more than one. I was still processing the idea of there existing one. I'm curious, do you think it was on patrol, possibly following a search pattern, or are you not sure? I don't know. I I honestly don't know. I think anything that I would be guessing about its behavior would be ascribing human traits to something that is quite potentially not. That's fair. So how many times did you see it pass? I don't remember the exact amount of times that I saw it. I, I will tell you that it happened every few seconds, let's say every 15 to 20 seconds for about seven to eight minutes. So what is that? Maybe 12, 13 times in total? That's quite a few passes. Yeah. I was able to find some Reddit posts of yours, and you said that there was a lot of footage that was recorded that got cut from the show. And there were a few things that you were hoping would make it into the show, but didn't. Are you able to go into any of that now? Some of it. Um, basically, the things that were cut and left on the cutting room floor. Uh, and, and first off, I want to give a shout out to uh, Anthony Lapp, who was the producer of the show, who took a, an amazing amount of information and was able to compress it down to about uh, six to eight minutes of, of airtime without destroying the idea of the story. 
but in that there was a lot cut. Basically, what was cut was my assumptions, my personal research and, and digging into the contents of the crate itself. And through, man, I guess it's been about 24, 25 years now. Over the course of about 25 years, I have dug and, and read and foyed and, and done just about everything I can. And through all of that, I have convinced myself that the contents of the crate was a recovered Russian nuclear device. Keep in mind that this all occurred in 1995. So we're about four years post-collapse of the Soviet Empire. And you have all sorts of fractured nation states. And these territories were nuclearly armed. They, they had fairly decent stockpile of nuclear weapons when they were part of the Soviet Empire. And all of a sudden they become their own nation state. Generals that were once loyal to the Soviet Empire, the Soviet Union, are now finding themselves in command of a very uh, low morale group of, uh, of troops that don't really know what's going on. And some other state approaches you and says, hey, I'm going to give you X million number of rupees or rubles uh, uh, in exchange for access to what's in the uh, the silo down the road, General. Some of these guys were able to be bribed with a bottle of vodka. I've got uh, documentation from John Deutsch, who was the uh, deputy director of Central Intelligence, literally stating in congressional testimony that there are known cases of prior Soviet generals that had been bribed by a single bottle of vodka for access to fissile nuclear material. I absolutely believe it. I've even heard CIA agents say that that was standard procedure for them to practice. I have no doubt. I, I have no doubt. Once, once your country falls and you have no more allegiances, you're, you're protecting yourself. You're protecting your immediate family and your dog. At that point in time, if, if somebody is going to give you enough money to feed your family for the rest of, of their life, you're probably going to take that money. Or if you don't have a family, the bottle of vodka. Through all of this and through the testimony, I even found documentation. I shared it with, uh, with Ryan Sprague, who is the host of Somewhere in the Skies podcast. And I believe he actually has it hosted on his, his site somewhere. I, I don't know. But I gave him the link that I found to a document from the CIA archives that shows John Deutsch's congressional testimony talking about this and admitting in official records that there was an incident in, he says, the previous year, his testimony was 1996, so it's obviously during 1995, where uh, U.S. and allied forces recovered, uh, intercepted and recovered uh, some very sensitive guidance system equipment that was trying to be acquired by Iraq, and it came out of the Soviet Union. I believe uh, wholeheartedly he was talking about my deployment where I was and the crate that I was guarding, but I don't for a minute believe that it was simply just guidance control systems. One thing that seemed a little vague in the description, and I'm not sure if you're able to actually talk about this or not, it sounds like where the crate was in the desert was quite a ways away from your base camp. Are you able to go into that at all? We got on site. And you have to you have to forgive me. My memory is scrambled. 
out of the 12 years that I was on active duty, there is probably maybe two weeks of that entire time that is crystal clear. And out of that two weeks, it's not a consecutive two weeks. There's, there's things that, uh, that I did that I remember what the air smelled like when I was doing it, uh, what the, the feel of the humidity on my skin was. And there are years that are missing and I just, I cannot remember it. We, we get to Jordan and we get to the base and it appeared to me to be an old base that had been previously abandoned and was now in the process of being retrofitted and, and maybe brought back to life potentially by uh, the Jordanian government, but more than likely uh, by uh, the U.S. And, and our allies and, and our presence over there taking over a previously defunct base. And this, this crate, keep in mind that Jordanian Air Force bases are notoriously large to begin with. They have a lot of territory. The government doesn't really plan things out, I guess, as, as we do. So the base itself was probably in square mileage, I'd say roughly the same size as Manhattan. It was, it was a large, large base. It didn't have a lot of infrastructure. It just had a lot of space. When you take that and then you put the crate far away from any of the infrastructure on the base, we're talking a long way out in the middle of nothing. I remember from your account, you said that you were flown into Jordan with members of your unit, but when you were placed on duty, you were not on rotation with those members, correct? Yeah, and that was one of the things that really struck out at me that, you know, we were we were told that we were going to participate in an exercise and uh, which was fine. We'd done dozens of exercise before joint forces training in all sorts of countries or locations. It was not uncommon to do that. But when we got there, you know, I'm carrying a full combat load. Uh, I've got uh, I think it was like 240 rounds of 556 five, ammo on me. I've got 18 rounds of high explosive grenades on my vest because I was a 203 gunner, which is a, a grenadier on the, uh, the the M16 rifle. When we first get there, you know, I, I deployed from Pope Air Force Base with nine other members of my team. And almost never does a deployed team get split up once you reach your location. Because you know these guys. These are the guys that you train with. You know how they move. You know how they operate. You know what they talk like. You know what they say under stress. You you know them. So when you get to a finite location and, and you're you're told that this is what you're going to be doing, you're with your team. But after about the second day that we were there, before I'd even been assigned a, a duty post, we all got split up. And they were, I don't even know where they ended up. I have no clue what they were doing. And the guy that I ended up posted with, I had never seen him before in my life. I don't even remember what his name is. Did you ever find out what group he was with? He was with Air Force Security Forces. Same thing that, same thing that I was. So it was just that he was from another base, another unit. And I, I don't remember his name, his rank or, or anything. But it was just so strange. And you know what? Let, let me retract that. He was identified to me as being Air Force Security Forces. I cannot confirm that he actually was or he wasn't. I operated under the assumption that he was the same as I was. So there were no signifiers on the uniforms? Oh, there were. There were. But a patch is a patch. You know, they're all Velcroed on. 
This next question has to do a little bit more with the interview portion of the History Channel show. Is Lou Elizondo as intense in person as he seems on camera? <laughs> wow, that's that's a loaded question. Um, Lou is an intense guy. I will tell you straight up that Lou, Lou is doing this out of belief in the greater good. Lou, Lou has a history, uh, a very colorful military history. If you were to pull up his DD-214, the entire thing would probably be redacted. Uh, you, you would be able to see his name and maybe his, his uh, retirement rank. And past that, the, the rest of the page is probably going to be black. So when, when he says something, the rest of the world needs to understand two things. One, he comes from a counterintelligence background. He was, for all intents and purposes, a spook, trained to not only uh, interrogate and read micro expressions and understand, be, function as a human lie detector, but also function as a spreader of disinformation. And people understand that and people know that. But what I want to convey is that I do not believe that Lou is doing this under the guise of anything other than exactly what he's saying on the television is that people need to understand what is happening. And I think he did give up a very lucrative, very professional, very structured career to do something for the rest of us. And I believe he's still under security clearance, correct? Yeah, once you're under that, you're, they, they don't expire. That also explains why he has to so carefully monitor what he says. Yeah, and that goes back to your question about what was left on the cutting room floor. You know, I, I gave Lou all the detail that I could remember, all the detail that I had dug up, documents and photographs and everything of my deployment in Jordan. And I believe, and I'm paraphrasing, it's not an exact quote, but on camera during the airing of the show, Lou says, and you can see him, he pauses, he tilts his head and he licks his lips and he says, I have to be careful here when he's talking about what I was under the assumption was in the crate. And what that tells me more than anything is that Lou went through the information that I gave him. He personally vetted it. He probably gave it to multiple other people who either vetted it or at least didn't deny it and gave Lou the confidence to agree with me about the content of the crate. Even if he personally knew, he may be in a situation where he's not able to confirm nor deny it. You know, I don't know if Lou would ever have been in a position to officially know what was in that crate unless he was on that deployment unless he was part of a very specific uh, recovery team or unless he was part of an administration that was deciding the dispensation of the crate I don't know that he would ever have been officially briefed to it so I believe that anything that that he vetted out would have been unofficial and and most likely off books and he has to be careful in saying what he, you know, to confirm or not to confirm my suspicions on the crate. For me, you know, should I have said anything? I don't know. Maybe. Uh, should I have kept my mouth shut? Probably. 
but it was it was 25 years ago, you know, and and there are some things that there are some things that just need to be said. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Moving on, 2020 has been an absolutely bizarre year as far as announcements and creations of different divisions. And to this year, we saw something I never expected to see. The president created a new branch of the military, the Space Force. What's your thoughts on that? Um, well, odd that you say that. Did you see what uh, news came out today? I saw your Twitter post, but I didn't look into the details. Well, not that one specifically, but Japan today has announced their Space Force and their partnership with ours. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the country that builds 60 foot tall walking Gundams. So, you know, but uh, yeah, the Space Force, it came out of nowhere uh, and it came out of nowhere roughly around the same time that President Trump was quoted as uh, when he was asked if uh, if he believed in, in the UFOs. And he said something like, you know, some people are talking about him. Some military guys claim they see him. Do I believe him? Not particularly, I think was was pretty much his quote. And then the next thing you know, we we have the Space Force. So it's it's ironic. I think it's pretty transparent. I, I, I think the the creation of the Space Force is it it says a lot about where we're going. There there is, in my opinion, and a lot of other people's opinion, a disclosure event occurring. And this is not going to be something like where the government pulls back the curtain and says, here you go. This is going to be a process, and it's going to be a very long process with a lot of pieces that have to be put in place and a lot of things that have to come together. And over the course of however long it takes, knowledge is going to come out, and ideas are going to be crushed, and revelations are going to be made, and people are going to be freaked, and some are going to be elated. But I think that the creation of the Space Force is, is most like a significant bedrock foundation of this process of disclosure. So that would make some of the Air Force videos that were released last year as a soft intro or a soft beginning of disclosure. Well, uh, first they were Navy. That was, uh, yeah, that was the Navy videos that happened on the, uh, the Nimitz and the Princeton. And the release, from my understanding, the release occurred because of the pressure and the publicity that Lou and his team at TTSA was able to to put on this, and the Navy the Navy's statement during their release basically said that you know we've reviewed the videos and we cannot find any sensitive or secret information that would be compromised by releasing this video, so therefore here it is. And they officially acknowledged the existence of the video. They officially acknowledged that the videos that had been circulating prior to their release was the same video with the same telemetry readings and nothing had been changed, manipulated or faked. And they said more by not saying what it was on the video than by coming out and saying, hey, that you know, we, we don't know what it is. They said that they don't have any, they don't believe that there's any sensitive information that can be gleaned from the video, which means they don't know what's there. They still don't know what they're looking at when they watch the video. So it's, it was a pretty big thing for TTSA to champion 
and push and, and get the Navy to release their versions, which were identical and confirm uh, not only the existence, but the process and the content. It seems like To the Stars Academy may have forced the government's hand. I know when it first came out, it seemed, you know, it was publicized. It seemed more like a publicity stunt, at least at first. But when things started to get released, it seemed to raise everybody's eyebrows, and it may have had a little bit of influence on the government's position. I, I have no doubt. Um, and I think Lou has pretty much said that to other people in public forums that he's doing this to be able to get access to the people in government that weren't able to to get access to the same information when he was doing this with ATIP. So when he was doing this investigative work with ATIP, he would have access to this information, supposedly, and he would create his briefings and he would send it up the flagpole and there was a blockage. There was a stoppage. You know, the people that needed to get the information either didn't take it seriously, didn't have the time, didn't respond to it, or were not given the information because of the way that the government is compartmentalized and the way that the chain of command operates in the military. People didn't get what he was reporting. So Lou, he basically says, screw it. I'm going to go do this on the civilian world. And when I get the same information and manifest the same data outside of classified sources, and I get it from open source information, I get it from public interviews, I'm going to give it to the people who needed to see it the first time and never got a hold of it. So putting it on television on the History Channel is going to get you know, the Senate Select Committee for Intelligence to sit down and watch it. And then they're going to pick up a phone and they're going to say, Lou, what else do you got? What did not make it onto the TV show? Come, come over here and sit down with me at my house and have a beer. And Lou goes and talks to Harry Reid and he goes and talks to Marco Rubio and he goes and talks to all these other senators. And the next thing you know, there's actual briefings. David Fravor, the pilot of the, uh, the Tomcat that saw the UFOs, he's the guy that chased him managed to get into the Senate and have a closed door briefing with select members of the Senate to explain what happened. So what he was unable to accomplish through standard government operating procedures and a funded program in however many years he was, he was with ATIP, he got accomplished in three years outside in the civilian world by bucking the chain and forcing the government to eat the information in a public venue. And now it seems like that may have instigated the formation of the UAP task force. I believe the Navy is still in charge of investigation and archiving the reports, but I believe its funding is contingent on making these reports available for viewership of other government agencies. Yeah, it uh, it uh, it came out of the DOD where ATIP was, and it went into the Naval Office of Intelligence. So, I don't I don't know what the politics are behind that. I don't know that it it, it may well be just I don't know. The Air Force now has the Space Force, and the Navy wanted something. I don't know. Uh, it could be that the most qualified people to dissect the information happen to be in that department. But for whatever reason, it's it's under the Naval Office of Intelligence at this point. Talking with you outside of this, I I understand you have some opinions on alien intervention and possibly some uh, foreign intervention in humanity in the past. I have 
before I answer that question, and I am probably going to ask you to repeat the question because I will probably completely forget it by the time I get around to it. I need to give you a little bit of background on, on my thought process on all of this. When that event occurred to me in 1995, while it was burned into my head, I never really did anything with it. Sporadically over the course of 25 years, I researched and I put things together, but I never went down the UFO rabbit hole. I was digging on the crate. I was digging for dispensation and, and ideas and understandings of what could have been in the crate and things like that. I never, I never did the UFO side. I never, up until recently, and I mean months ago, the only book about UFOs or anything like this that I had even ever read was an old book by Eric Von Daniken. I believe it was Chariots of the Gods that was written in the, the mid 60s or, or early 70s. And that was pretty much my only exposure to this world. So this, this has opened my eyes a little bit. And through, because of my exposure on this show, on, on uh, Unidentified, uh, the show on the History Channel, I have been in contact with other people from the show. I maintain a line of communication with Lou. Uh, I talked to him via text, via secured text, uh, probably once or twice a month. But recently, recently I've been put in contact with Sean Cahill. Sean was the, uh, uh, the master at arms on the Princeton. He was the guy that would, I think he did one or two episodes of Unidentified. But Sean and I are in daily communication with each other, and we have had Oh, wow. If I had to tally up the hours worth of time that we spent on the phone uh, talking, he has certainly influenced my, I'm not going to say it's a belief. I'm not even going to say it's an opinion yet. He's influenced my train of thought and to where possibilities lie. I'm not convinced of anything yet, but if you were to ask me, if you were to ask me a year ago, if I thought it, it was possible that factions of the United States government were and have been collaborating with, let's just call it what they are, aliens, I would have told you you're smoking crack and you need to get your head checked. I think that's quite likely at this point. I, I honestly believe it's quite likely I think it's come down to the point, and I don't have any evidence for this other than between the lines conversations, listening, hearing people out, and looking at things that looking at things that the rest of the world doesn't look at, not because they can't. It's just because they they don't know where to look and they don't choose to go after it. I think it's more than likely that we know, and by we, I mean humanity, a faction of humanity, a very small group of humans, they know quite well what's in the saucers. They know quite well what's in the black triangles. I don't think they have a clue what's in the Tic Tacs. And the black triangle craft, I am more than convinced now that this is a combination of reverse engineered technology that we've been working on for 
decades with assistance. So it sounds like you believe the three different types of crafts are different groups, different organizations, or even three different types of entities. Entities. Interesting. So have you been able to find any information about what species is behind each individual type of craft? I've heard whispers, but nothing that has even come close to my level of, of confidence and the ability to say it's a possibility. It's just whispers. And that makes sense. It's sometimes hard to separate the wheat from the chaff and to know what are legitimate stories and what are fanciful creations made up by people who have maybe have heard other previous encounters. Right. Prevailing thought at the bottom of this rabbit hole is that there is the existence of corporeal extraterrestrials. There is the existence of previously corporeal extraterrestrials that are now not. And there is the existence of interdimensional, what I don't even know if they would be extraterrestrials or just extra-dimensional beings. Um, that is the prevailing thought. I'm not quite there yet. I don't know if I'm going to get there yet. But the people that I have met, I don't want to name names, and I'm trying to be very, very careful in how I say this. There are people that are holding extremely high positions in government or in private industry that are involved in obviously politics, policy, but also in aerospace research and development that hold these beliefs. Wow. Okay. So I've heard of corporeal aliens. That's the pretty standard species. You know, they live and interact in the 3D world. I've even heard of other entities possibly traveling through dimensions of space and time. But the one that's completely new to me in that is previously corporeal aliens that are no longer corporeal. What's going on there? Well, it, it's basically what you're saying, you know, the, the non-corporeal type of entities. Uh, the idea behind this is, and there's precedent in earthbound religious texts. If you go back to the ancient Hindu and, and Sanskrit writings that are talking about, you know, meditation and achieving enlightenment and, and things like that, this is the idea that consciousness does not need the body to survive and that the previously corporeal as a race are no longer in physical existence, but the consciousness is still very much active. I hate to be this reductive, but that seems very similar to a Force ghost from Star Wars. Yes, it does. It truly does. We know George Lucas drew very heavily on world religions and world mythology when he was creating the story for Star Wars. So it wouldn't surprise me if he used this practice as part of his inspiration. Yeah, and this, this is something that really intrigues me because the conversations that I'm having with a certain individual who is convinced that, I'm stumbling for words and I apologize because this is something, if I had had permission from him to be able to explain further in detail and, and use the anecdotal evidence that he has given me, it would have been a lot easier to discuss, but, but I don't. But you're familiar with Skinwalker Ranch, I'm assuming. Oh, yeah. Okay. 
in this mindset that more than one person has, and I'm talking about like government officials and private aerospace moguls and, and folks like that, the idea, and this ties into Skinwalker, the idea is that hyperspace is a thing. But imagine hyperspace to be an ocean. And in our ocean, there are fish and octopi and jellyfish and things like that. But you can also take a speedboat and traverse the surface, or you can take a submarine and get from point A to point B. So if hyperspace is the ocean, there could also be beasties, nasties, little jellyfish in in the hyperspace. And if Skinwalker Ranch serves as a portal of sorts, when something utilizing hyperspace comes in and out of our area, I don't even want to call it a realm because that sounds weird. But when something utilizes hyperspace to come in and out of our area and it uses the portal at Skinwalker Ranch, things get trapped in the wake. A speedboat goes by and, you know, it pulls in a swarm of jellyfish behind it and it pulls them from the South China Sea or not a speedboat, but a a frigate. And it pulls the jellyfish in the wake from the South China Sea to you know, north of Australia or something, you know, like that. It it transports things because it gets sucked into the wake. It's like an airlock opening. Exactly. And this is the idea that Skinwalker Ranch and the sightings and the weirdness and, and the things that happen over there is because these things are being pulled in from their existence in hyperspace when a craft utilizes that area to, to move through and, and come into here. And if I remember correctly, Skinwalker Ranch is on the 37th parallel, which seems to be a UFO highway. It's interesting. If if you can on your computer, pull up Jordan and look what parallel line it's on. Oh, really? <laughs> Let me see if I can pull it up here. Jordan is uh, 36.2. So it's right there. Recently on the show, I've been doing a lot of top 10 lists, and one of them is UFOs. And it seems like everything is shifting a little farther north from, say, like Roswell, going north to like Idaho, the Dakotas, even into Oregon and Washington. Do you have any theories on that? Yeah, I think the population is increasing and the amount of people that are looking up is increasing. I don't think the uh, the craft are actually moving in that direction. I think that there's a larger density of human beings that that are looking upwards in those areas now because those are historically extremely sparsely populated areas. Now that people are starting to move out of the cities and try to regain some of their sanity back and, you know, live amongst the redwoods, I think that uh, that folks are starting to, starting to see things that weren't noticed before because there was nobody there to see them. Especially over the past eight months or so, when people have, by necessity, had to be home more often. Nobody's commuting anymore. Nobody's stuck in rush hour traffic. It's interesting because now with this whole COVID thing, previously you walk outside your house, you're looking across the street, you're looking at your neighbor's house, you're, you know, you're, you're looking at how dirty your car is or, or whatever sitting in your driveway. Now with COVID, because everybody's spending an inordinate amount of time inside your house, what's the first thing you do when you walk outside? You look up, you stare at the sky because it's so far away from the wall and the ceiling that you've been looking at for the last three weeks that your, your, your eyes naturally go to the furthest point away that they can get. 
So there's, there's a lot of people that are walking out of their houses now and they're, they're looking up and going, wow, this is different. Well, before we close the interview, was there any other topic you would like to discuss? There, there's going to be, there's going to be something happening very soon. And I don't know. We talked about a little bit before that this disclosure is, is a process and it is happening, but we never talked about the catalyst for this disclosure. And the government has never done anything that it hasn't absolutely needed to do. So you have to ask yourself, what is it that's causing this process to begin to unfold? And this could be something as benign as the advancement in civilian technology. You know, we're, we're now getting uh, National Geographic type zoom lenses on our DSLR cameras are now becoming extremely prevalent. You know, backyard astronomy telescopes that once cost twenty, thirty thousand dollars are now down into the fifteen hundred dollar range and portable. And people are taking camping trips with these telescopes that you know would have would have cost them as much as a house thirty years ago. So maybe this is, is something as, as easy to explain as there's an extraterrestrial mining operation on Europa that's going to be really easy to see soon, or, or it's different and bigger. I have no idea, but something, something is causing this process to start. Basically, we passed a point of no return, and the government wants to control the narrative by getting ahead of this. We, we may well have crossed the, uh, the information Rubicon, and you cannot put that back in the bottle. Do you think any of this has to do with the intense exploration and investigation of Mars? The same group of people that have some of the more esoteric and tangential thoughts on this process also believe that there is and has been a secret space program in existence for quite some time. So, yeah, I, I think Mars has a lot to do with it. I think the fact that we are, as civilians, commercializing space here very soon elon musk is going to have folks flying and and there's blue jeff bezos of blue origin is is going to be taking people to the iss just because they have you know half a million dollars to play with uh, these aren't people that are subject to government scrutiny and ndas and this this could be somebody from kazakhstan that owns an oil refinery it, it doesn't matter who it is but space just became public domain and once the public can get there, there's no hiding anything. There you go. I want to thank you for joining me tonight. Jeremy can be seen on the History Channel's Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation, Season 2, Episode 3, entitled UFOs and Nukes. I'll post an Amazon link below, or you could catch it in syndication on the History Channel. Thank you once again for joining me, Jeremy. Jason, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Esoteric Book Club can be found on Facebook at Esoteric Book Club, Instagram at Esoteric Book Club, and on the web at esotericbookclub.org. You can also email me at jason at esotericbookclub.org. Until next time, remember, stay weird. <laughs>